If you have your Bible with you this morning, if you could turn to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 12. The men walking down the aisles right now have Bibles that are marked in the scripture passage that we'll be looking at. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand, grab, get their attention, and they'll be glad to give you one. And that Bible is yours to keep. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. We'll be looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12. Before we get into the message today, there's a word of thanks in order from me to you. I want to thank you for your generosity to me uh, throughout the ordination service and the generous gift that you gave me for my library. Um, I, I just don't think I don't think I can express how generous your gift was and how much it meant to me. And it is all spent. It's all gone. <laughs> I bought a motorcycle. <laughs> I didn't get that much money, and I did not buy a motorcycle. <laughs> but it really is all spent. <laughs> but it was very generous of you, and I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I also thank you for your work in, uh, in the ordination service. Many of you had extra work to do that day, and um, many of you did uh, things that were above and beyond the call of duty. And um, I and my family just want to tell you that we really, really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we'll get to the reading of our text here in a little bit. But I want to talk about a little bit about diversity to get us started off. Diversity is something that is highly prized in our culture, isn't it? It's seen as a desirable and valuable status to obtain in almost every dimension of life. Diversity is desired in our schools, in the world of finance, in the gender balance of the workplace. Even the NFL is concerned about diversity. There's constant talk in the NFL about whether the head coaching positions are diverse enough. There are entire organizations dedicated to providing diversity training to the people in the workplace and to other organizations. Diversity is a desirable thing in the arts. It's a highly desired thing in world religion. In world religion, diversity is seen by the combination of our religious texts and experience as a means to leading to further enlightenment and truth for all of us. If we can all learn together and learn from each other, we'll arrive at truth. Yet diversity seems to be that desirable outcome that is consistently out of reach. We as human beings seem to want to homogenize, to be the same, to want to be with people, only be with people that are like us. That's why diversity training organizations exist. It's why schools in our country had to force integration. It's why ethnic cleansing takes place in different parts of the world. And why fights for women's rights are taking place. <laughs> Diversity, though highly desired, is at many times difficult to come by. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Just because diversity is des- desired by our culture doesn't mean that it's automatically bad. Quite the contrary, diversity is a good thing. In fact, it's a theological thing. Diversity is based on the very character of God himself. Because God exists as a trinity and three persons. And yet there is unity in that diversity. Diversity is a God concept. It's a theological concept. The unity and diversity that belong to the character of God is reflected in his creation. He didn't have to make the creation interesting. God could have made the creation, God could have made the world purely functional, but he didn't. He also made it beautiful. He made it varied. He made it interesting. But more importantly for our consideration this morning, God didn't just make the creation diverse. He made the church diverse. Think about our church for a moment. Think about the people that sit around you. We've got people in our church who have never graduated from high school and people who have their Ph.D. We've got people who ride Harleys, people who drive late model sedans, people who have to open their hood and hit their engine with a hammer just to get the car to start in the morning. We've got people who have made it financially and people who are just scraping to get by. got people who work with their hands to build and fabricate and repair. We've got people, the dirtiest they've ever gotten is when they've cleaned the dust out of their keyboard at work. We've got moms and dads, singles, teens, grandparents, kids. We've got people who have done drugs since they were kids. We've got people who have grown up in the church. What is it that caused all these diverse paths to intersect? It can only be due to one thing that could bring us together, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the common experience of the rebirth of the Spirit. Look here in 1 Corinthians 12 at verses 12 and 13. Paul, the person who wrote this, says, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. And so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. We have unity because the gospel is what draws us together, and we have with each other the common experience of the Spirit. And so God obviously values diversity. We can see it in what he's made. We can see it in his very character. We can see it in the institution of the church. He values diversity, but diversity to what end? It's not diversity simply for diversity's sake. It's not a diversity that's meant to lead to further enlightenment. We have the word of God for that. It's not a freewheeling, independent diversity. It's not a a diversity whose, whose chief goal is human advancement. 
but a, but a diversity that is purposeful. It is by design. It's a diversity that's actually supposed to lead to greater unity. And that's why I say in the take-home truth that the diversity of the church should lead to the unity of the church. There are many of us in here from many different walks of life and many different experiences, but we all come together in our diversity to create a unity. And when the church is unified and acting as one, it's able to carry out the mission and purpose that Jesus gave it to do. In fact, its functioning is so cohesive that it can be illustrated by means of a human body. And that's exactly what is done in the scripture passage that we're considering this morning. When all these diverse people like ourselves get together, what we do is we introduce people to Jesus. You see, we are Jesus' representatives here on earth. And we're Jesus' representatives not just individually, because we think of ourselves oftentimes in individual terms. We're supposed to individually represent Christ. But God has something, God, that is part of God's plan, but he has something even bigger in mind. And that is for us to represent Jesus as his body collectively as a unit. Look at what the, what the text says in verse 12 says again the body is a unit it's talking about how it's made made of many parts and then so it is with christ christ is being used here as a metonymy for the body of christ a metonymy is a figure of speech that consists of the use of the name of one object or concept for that of another to which it is related or of which it is a part that's when we talk about a head count we're talking about counting all the individuals in a room when we talk about the white house we're referring to the president And the body of Christ is so related to Christ and his mission here on earth that it can be referred to by Christ himself. So it is with Christ, referring to us, the body. And if you don't believe me, look further down at verse 27. He's talking to the group of the whole and he says, You are the body of Christ. And each one of you has a part in it. And in the church, God has appointed. He he equates very clearly right there the body of Christ and the church. And so from Woodhaven to Seattle to Muncie, Indiana to Reno, we have local bodies gathered together, diversity, creating unity, representing Jesus on this earth, and fulfilling the mission that he has given to us. If we as a church are going to fulfill this purpose that God has called us to, then we are going to have to funnel our diversity into unity. And if we're going to do that, we need to keep two things in mind. You're going to have to remember two things if our diversity is going to be turned into unity. The first one is this. The church needs you. Let's read verses 15 to 20. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And so I say, the church needs you. Do you have to understand what I mean by that? Church doesn't need you in any sort of ultimate sense. God doesn't need our service in some sort of ultimate sense, like we need air to breathe. God is self-sufficient. But that kind of the self-sufficiency of God can be taken too far and can put us into spiritual inertia or complacency where we feel like we don't have to act because God is going to take care of it. The truth is that God is big enough to ordain the ends, to ordain the outcomes of every single aspect of human history. But he has not just ordained the the outcomes, he has also ordained the means to those outcomes. And the means to those outcomes he has graciously included you and I gathered together in local bodies. In in saying that the church needs you, I want us to understand a couple of things here. Three things that we need to grasp with the fact that the church needs you. And the first is this. Your value in the church isn't based on your position. Your value to the church is not based on your position in the church. It's all too common for us to transfer our experiences from everyday life and from the workaday world into the church and apply them. And so some of us have the tendency to to look around and compare ourselves with others and make the incorrect assumption that because we don't have the position that others have, our value in the body is not as significant. The Bible tells us that this is a wrong way of thinking. That's the way it works in our places of work. The higher your title on the org chart, the more you're worth to the business. I don't say that critically. That's the way it is. The higher you rise in an an organization like a business, the more you're worth to them. But the business model does not transfer completely to the church. And so you can't start thinking that because your name isn't on the website or because you aren't a ministry coordinator or because you aren't involved in, in, this, in a ministry of some sort of prominence that you are thereby less valuable to the operation of the body. You can't determine your value based on your position. You, the foot, can't look at the hand and say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not part of the body. I mean, the, 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 that assumption is obviously absurd. And yet, many of us look around, start comparing ourselves with others, and feel that because we don't have fill-in-the-blank position, we aren't part of the body, or we aren't significant to the operation and function of the body. This kind of thinking shows up in a couple of different ways. One kind of person assumes that their, that their position is not important because it isn't a position of prominence. This kind of thinking isn't humility. It's misguided. And when you assume what you're doing is unimportant, you approach your job differently. You don't go at it as hard. 
You don't feel like maybe you have to give it everything. (laughs) Because it's not that important, right? I mean, it's not like I'm the pastor. It's not like I'm the leader of this. It doesn't really matter anyway, right? But this is a body. It's a body. And every single part is needed. This kind of thinking shows up in another way. Because there's another category of people who have selfish ambition and a self-centered sense of importance based on the position that they hold. These are the kinds of people that don't think of the body as needing them. They think of the body as serving them. We're here, I'm here in the body, and I have this position of prominence, and it feeds my ego. It feeds my sense of self-worth. It's part of who I am. If I, was, if I didn't have this position, then I don't know what I would be. And so when a responsibility is taken away from this kind of person, they get angry or bitter because you're taking away from their turf. Or when things go south in their ministry, something bad happens, they quit because it's not what they signed up for. I don't, have you ever heard somebody, I don't need this. I don't need this. That kind of thinking is indicative of me feeling like the church exists for me, not me for the church. And it's wrong-headed thinking. Let me illustrate it, this point for you this way. I was reading a book recently, and the author of this book was talking about an experience he had with uh, a pastor in his life. This pastor planted a church in the Philadelphia area. And this church, this is many years ago, this church started growing very quickly. It became a thriving assembly, and things seemed to be going well. But what soon became apparent to this man, this pastor of the church, was that the leadership responsibilities that he was undertaking for the church were taking too much away from his leadership responsibilities at his home. And there were some situations that arose that everyone agreed it would be better for him to direct all of his energies towards leading his home rather than leading the church. He hadn't done anything wrong. There, there, was, there was nothing, uh, there's no impropriety. But he left his position as pastor to deal with his home. This person turned the church over to the 26-year-old author of the book that I was reading. And this pastor who had planted this church and had seen it grow and thrive, when he turned the church over to this new person that was going to be pastoring, publicly committed to being an active supporter of the church that he himself had started. And he has been a member of that church for the past 25 years. Here's something that he said that tells us that that ministering in the church isn't about the position that you hold. Listen to what he says. He says, the gospel answers my questions of identity. It tells me that I am God's bondservant, his child, a worshiper, and a functioning member of his church. 
my identity as a pastor was always a secondary identity. I have not lost my main identity. I respond to the call to ministry. I responded to the call to ministry in order to glorify God. I do not presently have opportunity to serve as pastor, but I do have daily opportunities to fulfill my main purpose in life. Asking the question, "How do I glorify God now?" wonderfully liberates me. Is that not an incredible testimony of a person who holds a position and is willing to let go of that position for the good of his family and for the good of the church? It wasn't it was never about position to this guy. He realized that God didn't need him to be the pastor. There were other ways to serve. Your value in the church isn't based on your position. The second thing you need to understand, the church needs you. The body doesn't function properly without you. The Bible says here, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Let me just give you a few stats about the human body. There are at least 206 bones in the human body. There are at least 640 muscles. The lungs have at least 100 million tiny capillaries or blood cells forming a web through them. The focusing muscles in your eyes move around 100,000 times a day. All the nerves in your body could be stretched out for 42 miles. Not only do we have this great diversity and complexity to the human body, but all of those things have to work together in concert, don't they? I mean, just think about the simple action of you taking a stroll across the room and taking a grape and pulling it hard enough to separate it from the stem, but not grasping it so hard that you crush it. Think of all the coordination of motion and movement, the way your body has to work together to accomplish even the most basic tasks, things that you don't even think about. That's the way our body is. We have this wonderful diversity, and every single part needs to work together to be unified to accomplish the purpose that God has given us. The Bible doesn't encourage us as a church to all be vanilla and plain and the same. It doesn't ask us to give up all of our life experiences and all of our skills and everything that makes us unique. It doesn't ask us to do that, but it does ask us to sacrifice those things for the sake of the body, for the sake of the unity of the body, and to channel those things for the common good. The body doesn't function properly unless every single person in it is doing their part, no matter what it is. The body needs you. And your place in the body, thirdly, is God-ordained. Look at what verse 18 says. But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. That's an incredible sentence when you stop and think about it. God has arranged the parts in the body 
every one of them just as he wanted them to be. Who has arranged the body the way it's supposed to be? God. And how comprehensive is his plan? It includes everyone. And are there any positions that he had to settle for? No. When you're building a team, there's always those people on the roster that you just got to fill spots with. Even on the pro level, you just got to fill some spots. I mean, even the dream team, back in 1992, the Olympic basketball team, even the dream team had Christian Leitner on it. No offense to Christian Leitner. But you got Michael Jordan, uh, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, David Robinson, Charles Barkley, Christian Leitner. A good player, but sometimes you do have to settle. Not God. He has arranged local bodies exactly how he wants them to be, and every member has a part to play. Our God is a big God. Nothing in human history has ever taken God by surprise. He exercises the ability to guide and direct and control human history somehow without turning us into robots. That's not something that I can explain. The Bible says that he inhabits the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. The Bible says that he chose a group of people before a single atom of the earth had been created. He chose that group of people to make them holy and like Jesus and like his son. And then he directed all of human history to the cross to accomplish that goal. He's told us that he will one day reign with certainty over a new heavens and a new earth. God is in control of everything, and yet God's sovereignty filters down even to the nuts and bolts of our everyday life. And yes, down to the very church level of which you're a part and where you serve. So, given that, why in the world would we ever worry about whether we're talented enough or whether we have anything to contribute? Why would you even think that thought one more time after reading that verse? God has arranged the body, every part, exactly the way he wanted it to be. And the scripture passage has told us that every part has a role to play. God has so directed your steps in life that you are at this church, at this time, at this stage in your life, with these people and your problems and your life experiences. And the Bible says he got it exactly the way he wanted it to be. The body needs you. And you've got a place there. God made it so. That means you've got work to do. That means, like, what are you waiting for? There's stuff to be done. He put you here. You've got things to contribute. And so you can stop worrying about position or prominence or whether you have something to offer. And you can just get going. 
The fact that God has so arranged our positions in the body should waken us from complacency. But it should also quiet our restlessness. Some of you here are frustrated by various situations that prevent you from serving the way you wish to serve. There is a gap between your desire and your ability. And you are constantly frustrated, perhaps, by that gap. Perhaps you didn't plan on being single at this point. You anticipated having ministry opportunities with a spouse. You're not able to do what you thought you were going to be able to do. Perhaps you're married and your spouse, for whatever reason, is holding you back. And the ministry opportunities that you thought you were going to be able to share together have not materialized. And you feel like you're held back. Perhaps there are demands from your children or long hours at your job that frustrate you. Perhaps you have fallen into sin and feel that falling into sin has made you too broken to be able to have anything to contribute. Perhaps it's your health. It could be any number of things that create this tension in your life. But let me just encourage you with the fact that God's word applies to those situations too. God placed you in the body with just those situations. And God isn't constantly angry with you because he's holding you accountable for something that for for whatever reason you are incapable of rendering to him. A lot of us get caught up in thinking that our standing before God is based in part on what we're doing for God. And so we're constantly frustrated that perhaps God isn't happy with us or perhaps isn't loving us as he could because we're not doing what we should or we're not doing enough. Let me just lay that to rest for you. The gospel tells us that we couldn't be more accepted by God now any more than we were before. You can't possibly be more accepted by God than you presently are. Why? Because your acceptance by God isn't based on your performance by God. Your acceptance by God is based on Christ's work on your behalf. God loves you because of Christ, not because of what you've done. And so I hope this quiets your restlessness because God has put you in these situations with these people in this way exactly as he wanted it to be. The church needs you. But if we're going to recognize the the unity that can come from such a diverse group of people, then we're we're also going to need, need to recognize that you need the church. A lot of times we think in terms of what can we do for the church. And that's fine and good. But we also need to recognize that we need the church. And when I say the church, what I'm saying is we need each other. You and I need each other. Let's read verses 21 to 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. 
On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no divisions in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. What kind of person does Paul have in mind here when he says that we need the church? We could have in mind the kind of person who keeps a safe distance from the church. There are people like that. They like the church. They're happy with the church. They like to go to church. But as far as committing to the church, eh, not so much. Because that kind of ties down. It, it, it creates restrictions. And the Bible wants me to be free. And so there are people like that. They view their participation as a good thing, but optional. I think the Bible has a different kind of person here in mind, though, when Paul says that you need the church. I think the kind of person that Paul has in mind is the kind of person who is an integral part of the church. Perhaps has a position of power or influence in the church. Perhaps a person who is highly involved. And that may be you. Very involved, position of influence, lots going on. What people would consider a player in the church. But that person can oftentimes look down then at the other members and assume, I don't really need them. It's not that he doesn't want them around. It's not that they are important. It's not that he doesn't like talking to them. But when it comes down to whether they're needed, these people are dispensable. I don't have to have them. It's nice that they're here. But people like me are the people who really get stuff done. The Bible condemns that kind of thinking. That kind of person is gravely mistaken if he can look at other members of the body like a hand could look at a foot and say, I could just as well do without you. And yet we do it all the time. When we say that you need the church, you need to understand a few things. You need to understand, first of all, that your value to the church isn't based on your prominence in the church. A person whose ministry is more obviously noticed is not more important than any other person. A team can have a couple of all-star players. And those all-star players can carry the team. And some of the other players on the team can take the night off. And the other players are good enough to, to carry them. But the church isn't like a team. It's more like a body. Your heart can't take the night off. It can't say to the lungs, I'm glad you're still sucking in air because I stopped beating for a couple of hours. You really carried the body. No. If the heart stops beating, we're done. Now, not all the parts are like that. You can get along without a hand. You can get along without a leg. But you'll be doing just that, getting along. 
And God has intended the body, each part, to supply what is needed so that the body can thrive. Secondly, you need the church because unnoticed people are indispensable. Look at what the Bible says here in verse 20. Let's start with start with verse uh, 22. In the middle of the verse it says, "Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable." And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with a special modesty. All of these phrases can be taken together to make the following point. We've got internal organs which are weaker than other parts of the body. Your heart is weaker than your bones. We have internal organs which are weaker than other parts of the body. And we have parts of the body that we show special modesty to. And even though these parts of the body aren't prominent parts of the body, like the head, we show how essential they are by the very care we take to both cover and protect them. Those parts are absolutely essential to the sustainment and continuing of life itself. And so it is with the body. There are people who go unnoticed and serve behind the scenes. They aren't the face of the church. They aren't standing in front of everyone. But they are absolutely essential to the continuing of church life. They are indispensable. And Paul isn't talking really here about people that are actually weak. He's talking about people who are apparently weak because they aren't the power brokers in the church. They aren't the people that make the decisions. One person said this, In the estimation of some, they, the weak, were insufficiently impressive to count for much, either socially or spiritually, within the church or in terms of what contacts or ability they might show for mission or for speaking with wisdom and knowledge to outsiders. They just didn't seem to count for much. And this was a very real problem in the Corinthian assembly. There's a couple of things that, that cause us to think that in the letter, a couple of real problems that Paul addresses. One of those that he addresses is, is here in chapter 12 that we've been examining. Apparently, there were a group of people in Corinth who had an, ordinate desi- an, an inordinate desire for spectacular manifestations of the Spirit as a sign of spiritual maturity or attainment. And you could see how it would be easy for, for people to desire the gifts that they thought brought the greatest recognition. I mean, I can almost see someone in the Corinthian church looking over and saying, it's very nice that you're working on your gift of administration over there, but while you're doing that, I'm going to be speaking in tongues, okay? And everybody's going to be watching me. And so they're desiring these spectacular manifestations of the Spirit. And so Paul is saying to them, yes, the the different manifestations of the Spirit among you are a good thing. But that is not supposed to elevate one person above another. Your gifts of the Spirit that he has given to you are supposed to be used for the common good. Where they're supposed to create unity, they're actually creating division. Because you're making a name for yourself and then looking down at someone else and saying, I don't really have a need of you. 
rather than pursuing spectacular manifestations of the Spirit, they were to pursue, what he says at the end of the chapter, a better way. And you know what the better way is? It's love. That's what they were supposed to be pursuing. But there's another incident that was taking place in the Corinthian situation that makes his point so important that every person is needed. And that situation deals with the way that they were celebrating the Lord's table. I'll just read it to you, but in chapter 11, in verse 17, Paul says this, And the following directors, directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. Okay? When is church going to when does going to church become a bad thing? Right there. When you're meeting together does more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Apparently, there were a couple of groups of people within the Corinthian church, the haves and the have-nots. And they would celebrate this meal that would go right along with the Lord's Supper. We have a meal when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but it's separated a bit. We have a baptism and, and other things in between. They did it all at once. And apparently, we don't have all the details, but what was happening was there was a nicer meal for those that had more and the those who could not contribute to it, for those who did not have as much, they were getting shut out of that. And so something that was supposed to be an outward display of unity based on the sacrificial death of Christ had turned into a display of disunity. There were factions in the church. And Paul has said, you've been all been given one spirit and there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Does it, they're, they're, those boundary lines are erased in the church. It doesn't mean that they cease to be Jewish or they cease to be Greek. They didn't stop being slaves. But in the church, they were all equal as, as one in Christ. And Paul is saying, look at what you're doing. You're destroying the unity of the body in the very act of the celebration of the Lord's table. There's no praise for you in that. The Corinthians needed to realize of them that they needed each other. They needed the church. The people, the have-nots, were not just could be there or couldn't be there, doesn't matter. They needed those people. It's human nature for us to view parts of the body as unnecessary and unneeded. But we need those people. I need those people. And really the church functions the same way the gospel does. Because at the beginning, and you don't have to turn there, but at the beginning of the book, Paul talks about the unexpected nature of the gospel message in those who believe it. And I'm in Romans, which won't be helpful. 
but he says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. And he says that in verse 26, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. That are. That's the way the gospel works. It takes people that you wouldn't expect and God shows grace to them through a message that you wouldn't expect to have power and yet it does and it's the same way in the church people that you wouldn't expect to have any contribution God uses for the furtherance of his mission why does God do it that way so he gets the credit so he gets the glory thirdly you need the church and your need of the church is God ordained The fingerprints of God's sovereignty are all over this passage, aren't they? He's made it clear that he's put the body together exactly the way he wanted it to be. And then it's made clear again that he has intentionally, purposefully made it so that we need one another. He intentionally designed you to live your life in community with other believers. God never intended to save you so that you could do it by yourself. God intended you to live your life in community. He never meant for the church to simply be a place that you attend. He never meant for the seat that you're sitting just to be a place for you to fill. The church is about so much more. It's about active participation in a living body that's meant to represent Christ here on earth. That, that takes attendance, church attendance way beyond to the next level and the next level and the next level. And so the people sitting in front of you and the people sitting behind you and the people sitting next to you are people that God has decided you need. That's right. Even the person you're thinking about right now. Yeah, that guy and that girl, even them. God ordained you to need them. And so, the people that drive you absolutely nuts are here to help you learn patience and how to be long-suffering. And the people who have never been particularly kind to you are here to teach you that love isn't based on how someone else treats you. And the people who are constantly in need are here for you to learn compassion and love and help. One person said this, While there are some extreme circumstances when it is not possible to be committed to a local group of believers, and he lists Frontier Missions as an example, when it is possible, it is not to be seen as optional or dispensable. 
people in your local church are indispensable. All of them. They have a grace given to them by God to contribute to your life. Without them, your experience would be less than what God designed for you. Do you think that way? Without the people sitting in this room, my Christian experience is less than what God designed for me. And so the Christian life is meant to be lived in community and not a community of hand-picked people that you've chosen to be around you. The people that you like and the people that you have common interests with and the people that you share certain affinities for or the people who make you feel good or easy to laugh with. You don't get to hand-pick your community. He's put you with everybody and you need them all. And I need them all. And it isn't just a fancy idea. God designed it to be that way. We're in this together. We're one. And so when we rejoice, when one rejoices, we're going to rejoice together. And when one suffers, we're going to suffer together. When I talk about rejoicing, I'm not just talking about being happy because Bill got to go on vacation to Hawaii. And you're happy for him because he went. And you saw the pictures on Facebook and you felt like you were there. (laughs) I'm not talking about that kind of rejoicing. I'm talking about the spiritual joys that come with being connected with somebody so closely that those spiritual successes in their lives are seen as your own. I mean, think about the capacities for joy that you have when you experience an answer to prayer or a step of spiritual growth or a victory over sin or an opportunity to share Christ with someone and then start, think about the joy and then multiply that again and again and again because you have all of those experiences for rejoicing if we're connected. When a person that you know and love is able to gain victory over a particular sin. There's reason for joy. But there's also the suffering. And when one of us hurts, we should all hurt. When one of us falls into sin, it should wound you to the core. Because they're one of you, and you're connected, and they're going the wrong direction. That's what life in the body is like. And as you've seen, there, there, are, there are highs and there are lows. It's a package deal. We don't get to choose which parts we want. God has put us together. He intends us to live the Christian life together. As I close then, and I know it's time to close, let me just finish with, with this. I don't preach this message this morning because I think we have a disjointed body. We don't. Quite the contrary. I think I could name example after example after example just by going down rows of people who get it, of people who understand that they need to serve and understand that they need everyone else. But we've got to constantly be reminded of it. Because unless developing unity is a constant goal, a body is quickly going to turn into a monstrosity. And if you're wondering, how can I get involved? How can I serve? You're blessed to be part of a church 
that wants to help you do that. We have a community service coordinator and Ken Rapp. We've been having family meetings, trying to find out what you do. And if you're interested in getting plugged in, we want to plug you in. We want to, we want to help you in that way. But I also want to encourage you not to think of ministry in purely formal terms. If we're going to run an orderly church, then we're going to have to categorize, we're going to have to create rotations, we're going to have to make schedules. You're going to have to work security every other Sunday. You're going to have to bring coffee. You're going to have to fill in at the information table while some person is gone. Somebody's got to do the printing. Somebody's got to pass out what was printed. And when Pastor Ken's gone, somebody's got to preach. We have to think in those sorts of categories, but we do ourselves a disservice if we think that's all there is to ministry, formal ministry. Ministry is about more than what takes place on Sunday morning. Ministry is about fulfilling our spiritual responsibilities to one another, and ministry like that isn't quantifiable on an Excel spreadsheet printed out on a piece of paper. Ministry like that doesn't happen on stated dates and times. Ministry like that happens when people like us take relationships seriously. And instead of surface stuff all the time, we ask ourselves real questions. How's the leadership of your family going? What steps are you taking to deal with that spouse biblically that angers you, that wrongs you? How are you handling that? These are the kinds of things that happen with phone calls in the middle of the night to a friend when you've been wrestling with a decision and just need somebody to bear the burden with you in prayer. Ministry like this happens when a friendship between two moms turns into something intentional where they encourage one another in their spiritual walk. I could go on and on with these kinds of examples, but do you get the point that I'm trying to make? It's not just about formal ministry. It's about the ministry opportunities that are all around you. The one another commands of the New Testament are directed to hands and feet and knees and noses and eyes in every single part of the body. The work of the body was never meant to be carried out by pastors or by leaders. It was meant to be carried out by us all. The the opportunities to serve are as numerous as the people in our body and the people in our community. Let's show what true diversity is by using our gifts for the unity of the body and so fulfill our mission to represent Jesus as his body on earth. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the time that we've been able to spend together this morning. I pray that it would be profitable. I pray that you would help us to see that we, we desperately need each other and we need your grace to enable us to accomplish the mission that you've given us i pray these things in jesus name amen